So we'll be reading Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa. Asa the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram. Jehoram the father of Isaiah. Isaiah the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, and 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. I think everyone knows that Dan's now the uh, resident reader for any hard passages that come up. Thanks, Dan. Um, good evening, everyone. If you haven't met me, my name's Ken, and it is great to be here with you. Uh, adding my welcome to Mark's, especially if you are visiting newish or joining us on the live stream. Uh, we really are glad that you've chosen to be with us here as we are coming into this time of Christmas. And as Mark has got us helpfully thinking, this evening we are starting to think about Jesus and Christmas from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and with a reading like that, uh, you might be wondering where we're going, but we're going to continue this over the rest of this year and all of Term 1, and that's only going to get us to Matthew chapter 7. Um, so having read a lot of names, we acknowledge that even then we still don't rely on ourselves to understand this but upon God. So will you join with me in praying? Lord God, we do thank you that uh, your word contains stuff in it that we find strange but is good for us. And so as we spend some time tonight just thinking together about this passage at the start of Matthew's gospel, that you'd give us insights into it, not only so that we'd go away with a deeper understanding, but so that it would shape us to be more like the one whom it's introducing 
Make us more like your son, Jesus, we ask in his name and for his glory. Amen. Now, I assume that you already all know that you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover. But admittedly, sometimes it is very hard to do. This book, for example, has got to have one of the dodgiest covers of all times. It's pretty scary, isn't it, up on the screen there? Um, Yet if I decided that this book was no good just because it had a weird-looking cover, it would have meant that I missed out on something amazing. I'm so grateful that I got past my first impressions and read what was on the inside because the Screw Tape Letters is a great story, one of my favourite books. And while it's not a physical cover on the outside of a book, the first 17 verses of Matthew's Gospel I think works in a very similar way. Matthew is the first of four books that we call Gospels. Their accounts of Jesus' life are a bit like a biography or a life story of someone. Four different men, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, all wrote down accounts of who Jesus is, what he did, what he taught, what happened to him. And Matthew's comes first, right at the start of what we call the New Testament. There are many events and teachings that are the same in all of the four Gospels. But Matthew is the only one who starts his gospel with a long list of names, as we've just heard read out. It took quite a long time, didn't it? And having it read out like that, believe it or not, it's actually only a summary of Jesus' family history. And yet, in that list, how many names did you recognise? There's the odd one in there that you, oh yeah, I know who he is, but there's a lot that we don't, isn't there? Which means that if we judged Matthew's gospel by our first look at it, we might assume that, well, this is not going to be the most exciting story that I've ever read, is it? And perhaps you wouldn't even actually read on past verse 17, which given that we are going to look at the rest of Matthew, it's not the greatest advertisement, is it? So why does Matthew start his gospel with a very long list of names? I think that there are two main things going on which we'll simply call the good and the bad. And so to the good first. The good is that this list of names connects Jesus to some of the most important people in history, which is the point made in the very first verse. So have a look at verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is referred to in this verse by three titles, the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Now, to understand what Matthew means by each of these titles and and why I think we should consider them to be good, we need to look at each of them in turn. And the first one is Messiah, sometimes translated as Christ. It literally means anointed one, which is a fancy Israelite way of saying they got their head wet. Long before Jesus was born, prophets special group of people in Israel uh, were told by God at certain times to take a flask of oil and go and pour it over somebody's head. Now, that sounds pretty gross, and I certainly haven't had it done to me, but at the time it was a symbolic action that was understood by everybody who saw it, everybody certainly who received it, that God had picked this anointed person for a special job and was empowering them now to do it. Sometimes the anointed people were priests. 
Sometimes they were prophets. Sometimes they were kings. Sometimes they were military leaders. And having been anointed, they now played a special role in rescuing and leading God's people. So Messiah or Christ is certainly not Jesus' surname. It's a title saying that he's a special chosen rescuer and leader. There were lots of messiahs, lots of Christs, lots of anointed ones in Israel's history, but many of the prophets who wrote also told about a a super saviour that was coming, to use the words of Colin. A messiah that would be the greatest of all messiahs, not just an average messiah, the messiah to end all messiahs. And Matthew begins his gospel by saying that Jesus is this super anointed one. That's a pretty good start, isn't it? Should be starting to get you in. The second title, the son of David, again, has an Old Testament background. David was the second king of Israel. After the absolute terrible failure that King Saul was, David as the second king of Israel was an absolutely outstanding king. While he did make mistakes, including some very, very big ones, he always came back to the right understanding of his role as the shepherd of God's people. That's what God had anointed him to be. Given the privilege to lead, he did so by serving. That Jesus is the son of David means most obviously that he is a descendant of the great King David. And so if you do go back and read again this long list of names from 6 to 16, Matthew records the family line all the way from David through to Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. But Mary and Joseph were not the only ones that could show their descent from King David at the time of Jesus' birth, let alone even down to today. People will still trace their ancestry to King David. The issue is that in 2 Samuel 7, God made a momentous promise to King David that he would always have a son sitting on the throne. And while Solomon, one of David's many sons, did become king after David, during Solomon's lifetime, things went very, very badly in Israel. And in response to that terrible turn of events, God promised to send another king, another son of David, who would put things back together to how they were supposed to be. And so again, Matthew's saying right up front, so you don't miss this point, so that you look for it as you keep on reading. Look, here is the one that God promised to send for you. Here's the great king who's going to rule over God's people. Here's the one that God wants to rescue you, the king who will fix all the problems and rule in the way that he was designed to. Here is the one that you've been waiting for. Another good thing. Now, the final title in this first verse of Matthew, we're not going to go quite this slow through the rest of the verses. Uh, The final title is Son of Abraham. Now, many will know that Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. But just as son of David can mean descendant of David, so here Matthew's point is that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham the founding father of Israel. In our culture, what you know is usually considered more important than who your ancestors were. 
What study have you done? What experience have you gained? That's what equips you for a job. You don't write on your uh, CV that I'm the son of such and such who is the son of such and such, the son of such and such. What study you've done, that's what equips you for a job. But in Matthew's culture, who you were and what you could do depended a lot on the family you came from. Matthew as a Jew was pointing out that Jesus had an impressive pedigree within his culture. While he wasn't born into a rich family, he was born into the right family. And as God had made promises to David, so God made promises to Abraham to to bless him and through him to be a blessing to all nations. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of that promise too. So look out for it as you read through Matthew. Now, if I was Matthew and I was writing a gospel, I'm pretty sure that I would have called it quits right there. Three out of three means that Jesus is clearly very impressive, having all the credentials that would make him a great leader. You'd expect Matthew to to move on now and to show how Jesus fulfills all of those three titles. But instead, Matthew highlights some people in Jesus' family line that many historians would choose to leave out. And so we move on to the bad. We've seen the good, now the bad. Now, I don't know about you, but many of us have someone in our extended family that we're a little bit embarrassed by. Perhaps it's a weird uncle, the convict that was shipped out from England, the distant relative that's famous for all the wrong reasons. Normally, if we're telling our own story, we have control over it, we emphasise the good and just leave out all of the bad. But there are a number of names in Matthew's list which wouldn't ordinarily get a mention. And so have a look at chapter 1, verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. Chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. Salmon, or Salmon, the father of Boaz. I don't know how you say his name. Um, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And then we'll read again, finally, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now, in a very long list of men's names, the thing that immediately stands out is these are all women. And while that is unusual in itself in Jewish genealogies, if you go back and look through the Old Testament, apart from Ruth's one, most of them are just all men. More importantly than that, but, is that every single one of these women had done something or were something that would have made people in her society look down on her. Each of the women had done something or was something that communicated the exact opposite of those three terms, those three titles that we read earlier. Now, Mark gave us some background to Tamar's story. You can read it in Genesis 13. In brief, Tamar married Judah's eldest son, Ur, but he was put to death by God because he was wicked. Ur's next brother, Onan, likewise was put to to death by God for refusing to have children on behalf of his older brother. And so 
Judah, as the father with one remaining son, decides to keep that son safe by not letting him marry Tamar. Pretty standard response, you'd think. But in response, Tamar took things into her own hands. She dressed up as a prostitute, and as Mark said, tricked her father-in-law, Judah, to sleep with her. And that's how Perez and Zerah were born. Not exactly the highlight you want to talk about at the family gathering, is it? Now, continuing that theme, Rahab was not just dressed up like a prostitute. The book of Joshua tells us that that's exactly what she did for a living. Why the spies ended up at a house is not made super clear. In fact, Joshua, as one of the two spies that had done the right job, what was he even doing sending spies into the promised land anyway? But even worse than the fact that she was a prostitute, she was a resident of Jericho, which means that she was one of the Canaanites that, as Israel came to the promised land, was supposed to be wiped out completely. That a foreign prostitute had more faith than most of the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness is pretty embarrassing. But there she is, in the genealogy of Jesus. Next comes Ruth, who many would think would get a pretty good report card. Ruth's first husband, one of Naomi's sons, also died before they could have any kids. But she faithfully followed her mother-in-law back to Israel, and there she eventually married Boaz. While she did have one rendezvous with Boaz, which some people think pushed the boundaries, the big issue with her past is that, like Rahab, Ruth was a foreigner. She wasn't an Israelite. Chapter 1 tells us, chapter 1 of Ruth, tells us that Ruth was a Moabite. Now, for Israelites to marry a foreigner was a very dodgy issue, uh, to put it bluntly. But worse still, Moabites descended from Lot's eldest daughter who got her own father drunk so that he would sleep with her and she could have kids. The Moabites were a nation that were very closely related to Israelites but forever looked down on as an incestuous nation. Now, the fourth woman in the genealogy is not even named. Verse 6 calls her the wife of Uriah which, if you know your Old Testament history, makes the unmissable point that Bathsheba's past is not squeaky clean either. King David, who's already made it into the list on the good side, had lots of wives. But one of his biggest mistakes was staying in Jerusalem one year instead of going out to war against the Canaanites. While he was there in his castle looking over all he had, he saw Bathsheba washing herself on the top of her house and had the palace guards go and fetch her for him. He slept with her, and she became pregnant. And in an attempt to cover up his sin, David had Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed in a battle. This made it legal to marry Bathsheba, who then became the mother of the famous King Solomon. But David is confronted for doing such a wicked thing. You think that royal scandals are big this day? They have nothing on the ones that are included in Jesus' genealogy. And so we finally come to Mary. Now, because we've heard the story of Jesus' birth so many times, we know that Mary is an amazing woman. She's called the most blessed among women, and she's rightly considered to have been incredibly special, selected specially by God. And yet the reality of Joseph's reaction to the news of her pregnancy 
to the news of her pregnancy shows that neither he nor those who knew Mary at the time were naive. Even in our time, getting pregnant before being married is not the norm. But in Matthew's culture, it would have been considered a sin potentially worth stoning her for. While the Gospels go to to very big lengths to make clear that there was nothing improper, that Jesus' birth was brought about by the Holy Spirit, it is absolutely certain that most people would have just assumed that Mary was lying to cover up her sin. And so the intriguing thing about all five women included in Jesus' genealogy is their shady stories. Yes, they had great faith, often greater than the men around them at the time, but foreigners, prostitutes, incest, murder, pregnancy outside of marriage. Talk about skeletons in the closet. And that's just the five women. If we went through the men in the list, we would find even worse stories of disobedience and lack of trust, of selfishness and greed and mistreatment of people. Which, given that Matthew starts by emphasising such good points about Jesus, why would he now bring it all into doubt? I think if Matthew wrote his gospel in 2022, the most likely reason he would do this would be that his intention was actually to discredit Jesus. Having said a few nice things about Jesus, he now brings up a whole list of bad points to make the point that Jesus is an imposter. Or perhaps Matthew knew that scandals sell books. And so he was motivated, after all, by money and fame. But I don't think that that's how the gospel reads at all. It seems that Matthew is highlighting the good and the bad because Jesus' family history already shows us how God works. At the outset of his gospel, Matthew wants the reader to understand that God welcomes those people whom society rejects. Just like books with dodgy covers, people can be judged by where they're from or how they look, what they've done or what's been done to them. But God doesn't judge us that way. He doesn't write any of us off, but instead includes those who would normally be rejected. He sees beyond the external things that put others off and and sees our inside, sees what people can become. He knows all that we've done, the things that we tried to hide or cover up from others, and he loves us anyway. As we approach Christmas, Matthew's gospel gives us incredible hope that nothing we have done puts us beyond what God is willing to fix up. In fact, the hint we get at the start of Matthew's gospel is that God delights to include us, warts and all, in his story. And the greatest news of all is that rather than leaving it up to us to fix ourselves, he sent Jesus, who in the words of verse 1 is the most amazing person who ever lived, the, the great rescuer, the great king, the one who brings blessing to all. And so this Christmas, rather than judging the Gospel of Matthew by its cover, May its first 17 verses inspire you to want to read further and find out more of the backstory. May our very brief exploration of a text that at first seems long and boring may it excite you to want to find out more about who Jesus is and 
what he has done. And whether you do, by reading that, gain a first time, a renewed or a deepened confidence in Jesus, may that be the basis to an extraordinary life lived in response to who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Have a great time celebrating Jesus' birthday. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for those who wrote down accounts of Jesus so that we could come to know who he is, what he taught, what he did, and what was done to him, all on behalf of us. We thank you so much that the way that Matthew records this is not just a historical reflection, but it's designed to enable us to understand who Jesus is for us. And so this Christmas, as we think about Jesus first coming to earth, may it enable us to understand what we're on this earth for and as we wait for him to return to earth uh, so that we will be with him forever if we trust in him. We pray this in his great name. Amen.